Welcome to The Rational Egoist. I'm your host, Michael Leibowitz. The Israeli war is still in the news, very much so, as is the idea of social justice or woke. And plus, we have these protests occurring on college campuses. So I read a very interesting article recently by today's guest on how the war in Israel has exposed the hypocrisy of woke. So I decided to give him a, uh, an email and have him on. Robert Trzinski, welcome to the program. Uh, thanks for having me on again. I should say that that Rob is, he studied philosophy at the University of Chicago, and he's been a writer, lecturer, and commentator for more than 25 years. He's the editor at Symposium, and he is also a senior fellow at the Atlas Society. Did I get all that correct, Robert? <laughs> yeah, you should probably also add that my main sort of home base is the Trzinski letter, trzinskiletter.com, okay. and that is, that's sort of my main newsletter, and everything else sort of branches off from there. Many different things I'm doing. Okay, so cards on the table. First of all, what are your thoughts on the war in Israel? I mean, well, was, okay, so, was Hamas justified? Is the response no. justified? Is is the response you know too much? Yeah, yeah. What do you think about the basics? All right, so um, well, let's get that's a lot to go over. But uh, first of all, I want to say I don't want to call it the war in Israel or the Israel war or something like that. This okay. is the Hamas war. This is the Gaza okay. war. Because this was absolutely, I mean, you know, if you saw what 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 Hamas did on October seventh, you know, they they break down the walls, they go into Israel, and they just simply engage in the mass indiscriminate, you know, killing, torture, rape, abduction of of civilians. So this, you know, what I think I showed to this is that the one of the things that this demonstrated was that the the um, the program of Hamas, the goal of Hamas, is not their own state. It's not the prosperity of their people, it is genocide. It is basically the mass indiscriminate killing of Jews. So that indicates what Hamas's goal is. And so I think the absolute correct response is Israel, you know, no state could tolerate this. And by the way, you can put this in perspective. There's like 1,200 people or so who were killed and, and a couple hundred more taken hostage. I mean, you have to multiply those numbers by like 20 or 30 to get something uh, maybe even more, but about 30 or so to get to the equivalent of what that would be in the United States. So it'd be like somebody, you know, launching an attack in the United States that killed tens of thousands of people here and abducted thousands. Uh, and, and you know, the, the scale of it, just to get the sense of, because, you know, I, I know some Israelis, uh, they were beside themselves because every Israeli I knew knew somebody who had been killed, a whole families who had, who had basically just been wiped out by this. So you have to get the idea of the scale of the trauma to Israel of this attack. Uh, and of course, it was you know exactly the sort of thing they've been guarding against. And then the government failed, uh, very conspicuously failed to to guard against it in this case. But they have to do something. You know, they, they can't, you know, no state can permit this kind of danger to, to exist. Yeah. So they have to go in and they have to get rid of Hamas. I think they're doing, I mean, I don't think they're going to do, I think they're going to cause more damage in some ways than they need to and probably less in other ways. Uh, I'm concerned that they will sort of like cause a whole bunch of damage and then withdraw under international pressure and not really accomplish what they need to accomplish. I think what they need to do is they need to be able to do some of the stuff we've been seeing. You see these pictures of the 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 um the guys in their underwear being being herded around. These are people who surrendered. Now these are they're saying like 10% of them are Hamas. The other 90% they're screening and then they're releasing. They're just civilians. They have them in their underwear because you know, they don't know if they have weapons. They don't know if they have bombs. That and and those photos have leaked out. 
But the, that's essentially what they need to be doing is they need to go through Gaza. They need to clear it out piece by piece, sort out the people in there. You know, who are the civilians? Who are the militants? The militants have to go off and be imprisoned. I think any that anybody who's connected to October 7th, I, I'm assuming, you know, those people will will get the death penalty of some sort um, because, you know, if, have these guys were wearing cameras, you know, documenting what they were doing. They left plenty of evidence of of what are essentially war crimes. I mean, by the way, the 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 Geneva Convention does not apply to Hamas. They were uh, non-uniformed, irregular combatants. They were violating the rules of war themselves. So, you know, the the usual they're not just POWs. They're criminals. Uh, it's like catching pirates. Right. Okay. So, the, the, you know, the, the laws that have that apply to that, that apply to pirates and to war criminals apply to um, to Hamas. And but, you know, they're going to have to clear out Gaza. They're going to have to filter the combatants from the non-combatants. Uh, I don't like these word innocent civilians because there's a lot of civilians in in Gaza who supported Hamas. Right. Sure. Which makes them not exactly innocent. But on the other hand, they are non-combatants. And by the rules of war, you know, you are not supposed to target non-combatants. You can't just indiscriminately kill non-combatants. So uh, you have to basically sort the combatants from the non-combatants. You need to then what I think Israel has unfortunately been trying to avoid doing for many decades, which is what got them into this, is they're going to have to impose some kind of regime of occupation, of rehabilitation, uh, something to prevent Hamas or a group like Hamas coming and just taking over again and having this whole cycle repeat again in 15 years. And I think that's, you know, what they did, the mistake they made is they they lifted the occupation of the, Israeli, of the Palestinian territories and they said, well, we're just going to let them off on their own. We're going to wall them off. We're going to literally build walls around them. And then they can be on that side of the wall. We're on this side of the wall. And we won't try to exert any kind of control, any kind of occupation, any kind of, um, you know, we're not going to try to impose some kind of civilized order in there. We'll let them fight it out amongst ourselves, the different factions. We'll let them, you know, engage in in, in training a whole generation, indoctrinating them in terrorism. And then we'll sit behind our walls. Well, that didn't work out because first they lobbed rockets over the walls and then they broke down the walls and came and attacked. So I think they're going to have to go back to what they didn't want to do before, which is some sort of long-term system for uh, imposing a more civilized order uh, on, 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 on Gaza. And I think that's going to be what they're going to shrink from. Nobody wants to do this, right? Nobody wants to do a proper counterinsurgency. We didn't want to do it when we did it in Iraq, yeah. right? We, we, we decided eventually we didn't want to do it in Afghanistan. Um, so, you know, nobody wants to do this kind of long-term counterinsurgency, but it is the only option Israel has because, you know, I, the, what the, uh, I'll finish up here, but the big picture I have on this is that if Israel actually were a colonial occupier, they would have withdrawn and gone home by now, right? If if they were the equivalent of, you know, the British Empire, well, the British Empire eventually got tired of of having to police the colonies and put down insurgencies, and they said, "We're just going to go home and we're going to leave." Uh, the U.S. did that in Af in Afghanistan. Uh, we decided we're, we're tired of doing this counterinsurgency. We're going to go home. We're going to leave. If the Israelis are equally tired and have been for a long time. And their sort of policy of disengagement where they just walled off Gaza, that was their attempt to say, we're going to go home, we're going to leave. The yeah. problem is they can't do that because they are home, right? They don't have anywhere else to go. Israel is their home. So they're going to have to say, well, they're going to have to realize at some point you can't just get tired of doing the counterinsurgency and doing the occupation. You have to get better at it. 
You can't get tired of it. You have to get better at it. And you have to eventually persist at it until until it works. And, you know, the fact that Israel has a, a large Arab population of, of Israeli Arabs, Arabs who are Israeli, Israeli citizens. And I think their, their level of patriotism, of pro-Israel sentiment among the Arab population of Israel went up after the October 7th attacks. So it's clear that you, they can live side by side peacefully with with Arabs um, yeah. and Muslims and and because uh, not all Arabs, some Arabs are in the area are Christian. Um, you know, th these people, these two people can live side by side peacefully. Israel has actually d d demonstrated that you just have to figure out how to make it possible to get to that. The idea that Israel is somehow committing a genocide is so ludicrous. The the amount of Arabs in Israel has increased. Since I think the, the number of Arabs in Gaza, the number of Arab, the population of Gaza has increased like seventy percent. I mean, it, literally, the average age. It's been like twenty years since they engaged in genocide against Gaza. And the average age of the population is like 18 years old, which means that you know, the majority of people yeah. living there were born yeah. under this under this uh, supposedly uh, oppressive rule. Now, I want to say you know, the, the situation of the people in Gaza is not great. They have been sort of walled off. They have uh, been held back economically, all that sort of thing. But that was all necessary because they had a government, they had a, a leadership. I don't, Hamas isn't exactly a government. Uh, it doesn't really have that kind of legitimacy. But they had a, had a leadership, a, a dominant power and control that made it necessary for Israel to wall them off. So I, I think that the larger – I'm working on a piece right now where I want to talk about how the, the Palestinian people and the Palestinian cause is one of the world's greatest, largest demonstration of how not – to pursue the interests of your own people, how not to pursue the interests of your cause. It's like it is one of the losingest causes in the world, and it's because they did it and they pursued it in exactly the wrong way. And I think there's some great lessons for us from this, which is, you know, first of all, they it's like they combined all the worst things in our own culture, in American culture, and decided we're going to go all in on those. And the worst things are uh, anti-colonial sort of revolutionary Marxist uh, militancy. Right, that there's a huge element of that in the pal the way the Palestinians have approached it. And then the second thing they did was uh, ethnic, religious, intolerant, fanatical nationalism. Right, so you know the the, the uh, uh, Hamas is a radical Islamic fanatical religious group. So they basically said we're going to take all the worst things of the right and all the worst things of the left. We're going to make that our leadership, and we're going to follow them, and then we're going to see where we get. Well, where you get is exactly what has happened to the Palestinian people. You know, where you get is poverty and stagnation and mass death and the leadership that is totally indifferent to your to your to the lives of its people. Um, it, there's some great interviews, uh, really telling interviews that came out with Hamas after October 7th, where they said, you know, uh, the problem is you know, the Israelis love life, but we love death. We want our people to be martyrs for the cause. So the death of uh, civilians in in Gaza is not some accidental consequence. It is it is the Hamas plan that civilians will be sacrificed to be made into religious martyrs for the cause. So I think this is sort of a giant cautionary tale of here's what happens if you let a combination of you know uh, uh, radical left revolution revolutionaries and uh, and religious fanatics be your leadership. So. The piece that you wrote talked about the, the hypocrisy of the woke movement. So mm -hmm. 
before we can understand how the, the, the war on Gaza or war on Gaza, the Hamas war, has exposed that that hypocrisy. What do you mean by the the woke movement or woke or social justice movement? They're all so, sort of synonyms of each other. But what exactly are we talking about? Right. So so wokeness has. I mean, there's a famous thing. Uh, Bethany Mandel, who's a, a writer, famously had this like you know was asked in an interview, what do you, how do you find woke? And she basically yeah. stammered for five minutes and, and couldn't give an answer. It woke, unfortunately, it's it. So by its nature, it, it started out as a slang term. Right, it's a slang term for staying awake, uh, yeah. and uh, you know the question. But it helps to quite. What does it mean? To, what are you being awakened to? Right. So it started as a slang term, and, and slang terms, by their definition, by by, by their very nature, have no formal definitions. Uh, it became loosely associated, though, with the idea. I think originally the meaning was what you're supposed to be awakened to was the persistence of racism in in society and this has roots in the 60s and 70s you know right at the end of the civil rights movement when the yes there was a lot of racism there had very recently been institutionalized uh legally enforced racism so the idea of being awakened to the presence of racism in, a, in the society that was the original idea but since then what it became associated with a particular view of what racism is and how racism is institutionalized and that is the critical theory approach. Uh, and this is something that came out of postmodern philosophy and became a fad in academia, especially in the 70s and 80s. And it sort of has filtered down now to the popular level. And the, the essentials of this critical theory approach is, first of all, that we are all defined by our racial or ethnic identity. Right. So identity is such an important thing for them. And identity doesn't mean your individual identity as a person. It means your identity as a member of a group. So our group identity, what 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 racial or ethnic group we belong to defines everything about us. And if you're in several different groups, you know, there's intersectionality, the intersection between, well, I'm I'm a, a gay, a gay black. Uh, left-handed lesbian tugboat yeah. worker, whatever, you know, yeah. whatever it is. Victim Olympics, we, right? You get the gold medal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and, and the there's this sort of, yeah, there's this sort of comp, this sort of competition, implicit competition out there where if you can intersect as many different victim, victim group identities as possible, then you win the prize as being the most victimized person. Uh, and, and then there you get, there you get the most privilege or, 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 uh, you know, the world owes you as the most in return because of your victimized status. So it's this idea of viewing yourself purely in terms of your group identity, your, your, which group you are a member of. So it's this very collectivist viewpoint that my group membership defines everything about me. And the second thing is uh, that that characterizes this critical theory approach, which has been then known in popular as wokeness, is the idea that these patterns of racial and group identity shape absolutely everything. They're at the root of everything. They're behind everything, even things that don't seem to be political at all. So, you know, sex, romance, sports, every issue out there, it's all, you know, hidden behind it is some secret uh, racial history or some secret pattern of racial oppression. And then the last thing I would say is that uh, wokeness is characterized by the idea that this is just the nature of the world and it's going to be like this forever. That there is no... This isn't, you know, the, the idea of people being in patterns of oppression based on their racial identity is not a an unfortunate history that we have to get beyond. It is that this is just the way the universe works, and this is going to it's it's this from now into forever, right? So this is, you know, there is no redemption. There's no if if racism is our original sin, 
somebody said, described it as it's like a religion with with original sin but no concept of redemption uh no concept of salvation right so you have the original sin is racism but there's no redemption we're never going to be cured from it it's it's this way going forward so that's what i would describe as you know the the thing that people vaguely refer to as wokeness now obviously in popular parlance you know the the left has said decided oh that's a totally made up term we never used that they did use it uh and the right has decided Everybody hates wokeness, so let's take everything we don't like and define it as wokeness. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. So uh the way I put it is if 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 wokeness for you is a perfect circle Venn diagram with everything you don't like, you're doing it wrong. But if also if wokeness for you is just puppies and sun and rainbows and and uh you know something nobody could possibly object to, then you're also doing it wrong. Right. So you have to there's a history of this. There's there's there are certain ideas out there and they have a specific identity and you have to define those, which I yeah. hopefully did in a concise enough way just yeah. now. I actually heard Ibram X. Kendi uh, use the term woke in, in not yeah. a pejorative way during a lecture he was given. I, I was able to listen to it in podcast form or a digital, yeah, you know, I don't know what it is. But it, he... it's, it's, it's funny. I'm an objectivist and I have called myself an objectivist for, you know, coming up on 40 years now, uh, 35 years, maybe. Um, and I've never felt the need to change the term, but there are certain <laughs> ideologies out there where they come up with a term and that they use for themselves. And then after a while, when it when people start to dislike it and say, oh, those people are terrible. I don't like those people. Then they change what they call themselves because they don't want to be tagged and identified and, and nailed down that way. Uh, so go they, ahead. They, they seem to, well, not seem, they do. They, they, this emphasis on race, ethnicity, they... they would seem to favor people that have been oppressed. That's who they're looking for, right? Now, historically, there's very few ethnicities or religions that have been more oppressed <laughs> than Jews. So it would seem as if the woke amongst us would want to embrace Jews, right? But yeah, that's not what's happened. Yeah, there, there was, there's an old uh, running joke that went around the internet, uh, probably predates the internet, about how you could sum up different religions and philosophies uh, in various versions of the of I'll, I'll clean this up for a family audience of same stuff different day, yeah. you know, and uh, I think that's Buddhism is same stuff different day, uh, <laughs> and and uh, the the version for Judaism was why does this stuff keep happening to us, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know that this is yeah these are people who have basically been kicked around for the last two to three thousand years, you know, invaded and deported and and spread out throughout the world and right. persecuted in various ways. So yeah, that's the thing is that 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 I think that's the big thing that's coming out right now, and it's it's especially in the last couple of weeks, that in the reaction to uh, October seventh, you saw these people, these woke people, the people who say silence is violence, and you know that 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 speech can be violence. An act of horrible barbaric violence was committed by Hamas, and and some of them were actually actively cheering it on, uh, and many others were essentially indifferent to to the fate of the Jews. And so it's like if you're for marginalized people and victim groups and people who have been victims because of their ethnic and religious identity, why is there a giant asterisk in front of that that says except for the Jews? And I think that sort of gives the lie to everything that we've been we've been told. And I think specifically there's one aspect of this. Now, this came up um, – I wrote a piece about this a, a week or two ago. And I think you're probably going to link to that. But what the thing that happened right after that is they had a couple of these heads of, uh, you know, the the, the head of Harvard and, and University of Pennsylvania, and I think one other school. They had them come to Congress to give this testimony, and they're asked, well, if, would somebody advocating 
genocide of the Jews? Would that be hate speech that's against your university's rules? And they couldn't give a clear, straight answer to it. They couldn't say, yes, this is hate speech or this is this is against our code of conduct and, and we would punish it. You know, actually act, advocating genocide of the Jews wouldn't wouldn't counter this. Now, the, the reason that's such a big sort of head exploding moment, right, is because these the wokeness and political correctness, as we used to call it, one of its signatures is we're going to please everybody's speech. And even the most seemingly insignificant, seemingly innocuous thing that you say that's that's considered the wrong kind of speech. We're going to police that. You know, uh, uh, J.K. Rowling is a horrible bigot because she doesn't accept the exact formulas we'd want her to accept. It's just repeat the exact formulas we want her to repeat about trans people. You know, even though if you, if you hear what she says, she has a very reasonable, nuanced, non-hateful approach to it. But again, she's wrong because she won't, mouth the words or if you um you know if you use any kind of raw if you wear the wrong kind of halloween costume right you're a horrible racist and a bigot and so they've been they've been applying like this this microscope to everyone to search for any little clue about any possible implicit uh thing that you might say that might imply a hateful attitude towards other people and then you have these pro-palestinian activists who will go out and say you know from the river to the sea now, this slogan, from the river to the sea, means from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean. It means all of Israel. And the idea is that they're going to take over all of Israel and they're going to push all of the Jews out. At the very least, it's a call for, you know, sort of master deportation and ethnic cleansing. At the most, it's a call for genocide. You know, this is something, though, that, that you have to, oh, well, we don't really know what the person meant by that. And maybe it depends on the context whether that would be hateful. Right. So they've been prying a microscope to everybody else's speech, searching it for the slightest possible hint or implication, even an unknown one to you of, of a hateful meaning to it. But then, you know, on the other side, when it comes to the Jews, when it comes to Israel, free reign, you can say whatever, you, you know, the things that really do imply ethnic cleansing or genocide. We, we, it depends on context. We can't really we have we can't really judge. And that's what sort of gives the lie to the whole thing about wokeness or political correctness is that they really weren't concerned about victimized people. They weren't concerned about social justice. They weren't concerned about violence towards, uh, uh, towards ethnic and religious minorities. It was really, they were concerned about power for their group, power for their side. Why do you suppose when it comes to Jews, there's this different take? Is it just because they want power for their own side? Because, they, I, I mean... Anti-Semitism is the easy thing to go to. And I'm not saying there's none of that there, but it just seems to me that there has to be more. And maybe yeah. you don't know. I mean, I don't. I've got a couple ideas of this. I think, All right, I think it's, let's hear it. Well, this is one of these things where you come up across against something this bad, and there's probably like five, you know, it's like three or four different causes all at work at once because it has to be, you know, things have to sort of pile up. So, for example, one of the things I found in here is that uh, there is this little ugly little side current of this is there is a history of black anti-Semitism. Sure. Uh, now, obviously it's not all the history because, you know, one of the, so one of the things I point out in the article I wrote about this recently is that, um, you know, one of the, one of the complaints people had against the 1619 project is that it implied that, you know, black people had to fight completely alone for civil rights. Well, they didn't have to fight completely alone. They had many allies and among the most prominent allies uh, were were Jews, American Jews, because American Jews saw and said, look, you know, you we're in the same boat. 
You know, if they could treat you like second class citizens, they could treat us like second class citizens. And so American Jews were among early, early organizers, early funders, early supporters of the civil rights movement all along. Right. So and and there's a long history of that, you know, the in the NAACP of cooperation and and this sort of uh, 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 being allies and being in the same boat that 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 Jews and 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 black leaders had. But there's also a string in there that goes back to like Louis Farrakhan and Al Sharpton, who somehow got rehabilitated as a civil rights leader. Uh, he started his career by stoking anti-Semitism. It, it probably has some root in the fact that in some of the inner city black neighborhoods, the sort of ghetto, quote unquote, ghetto neighborhoods, you know, funny ghetto is a term, you know, used for black neighborhoods. It was originally named after the the Jewish neighborhood yeah. in 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 Italy, you know, where the where the Jews were 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 for, were were allowed were were made to stay separate from everybody else. But you know, the inner city black neighborhoods, the poor inner city black neighborhoods with high crime rates, oftentimes the other regular mainstream shops wouldn't set up because the crime was too high and that sort of thing. And oftentimes it was immigrants who would be willing to take the chance and, and the extra risk of starting shops there. So a lot of times, especially in New York, there were Jewish uh, shop owners. Uh, and uh, so they got the resentment of the local population of, oh, you're charging us higher prices. You're, you know, you're, you're taking advantage of us. And maybe that's part of the root of this Jewish anti-Semitism or uh, black anti-Semitism. So that's part of that's like in the mix there. I don't think that's a major cause because that's been around for a while. The other part of it is that wokeness implies tribalism and it implies my group versus your group. I think of myself as a member of this group and other people as a member of a different group. And it, 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 it preaches that sorting yourself into tribes. And also you're seeing yourself as constantly basically the, uh, the victim of a conspiracy by everybody else and every other group to take advantage of you and to keep you and to keep you down. So the sense of there's a future we're working forward where we'll all be brothers and we, you know, there, these divisions won't exist anymore. Without that, if all you have is, well, it's my tribe and there's other people's tribes and they're all out to get us and everybody else there, you're trying to make me a victim. It, it, it gives you a set of conspiracy theory mentality. This idea that you know all of society is a giant conspiracy to keep me and my type down, and when you get that, then it's really easy to divide people up in that tribalistic kind of way, and oftentimes very simplistically, and also to believe in all sorts of conspiracies. So one of the things that's happened is, um, and people have been pointing us out that that especially in academia in the universities, where there was taught this very much. There's a white oppressor. Um, everybody's you know sorted into victim and oppressor and there's the white oppressors over here and the victims over there and so a bunch of european jews they they get lumped into the white oppressor framework now throw into this i think the last final thing that i think we need to have as, as part of it which is that israel has been successful you know israel we could talk about israel they've been you know the the, the they went through the holocaust they were victims of horrible injustice and you know the 2000 years of oppression etc but what I find interesting is that Jews never got hated quite as much as when they stopped being victims. You know, when they when they set up their own country, they made the desert bloom, as as the, the phrase famously goes. You know, they made it prosperous, they made it powerful, and they they have a successful army that won two major wars and has, you know, that cannot has not been nobody's been able to defeat them in what uh, seventy five roughly seventy five years of Israel's existence. 
So I think also there's this extent to which um, they were perceived because they're powerful, because they're not victims anymore, then they lose that sympathy of being a victim group. And so you go looking for some other victim group that is then going to counterpose against them. And there is, you know, I guess I mentioned earlier that the Palestinians have, was it the old phrase about them is they never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. You know, the Palestinians have basically been sabotaging their own cause for so, you know, since 1948. Abba Eben. That's who said that. Abba Eben. Yeah, that's it. I couldn't remember who it was. But it, yeah, it's an old saying goes, I think it was back in the 70s, he said yeah. that, right? Maybe even uh, the 60s, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, in 1948, they were offered their own state side by side with, with the new state of Israel. And it was, it was larger than the territory they control now. And they said, no, we're going to attack you and we're going to, what you know, drive you into the sea. And uh, ever since then, they have, you know, consistently missed every opportunity they could possibly have had to, to, to have peace with Israel, to have their own state, to live in some kind of harmony and prosperity with, with these neighbors. Uh, and so if you're looking for the ultimate victim group, there they are, because they, they've consistently made all the wrong decisions and, and um, caused a lot of destruction to themselves, uh, you know, unfortunately for, for their people. I mean, the suffering is very much continuing to today, I mean, a lot. There's going to be a lot of horrible carnage in Gaza because of uh, the Hamas leaders not caring about the the backlash, the sure. blowback from it. So, like you said, the hypocrisy in the in the social justice movement is being exposed here. Do you think that it, it, it's coming to an end? The 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 whole. I mean, I I don't think it'll ever completely end, but I mean, the the preeminence that it sort of had over the last, I don't know. 10, 15 years. Do you think that it's it's dying down now? And and, that, and what can we do? To, what can we do to facilitate its demise? Yeah, that's a sixty four thousand dollar question. Um, uh, gosh, that's an old reference. People probably don't even know that. that there used to be a game show called the sixty four thousand dollar question. Anyway, it, it's not important. That's 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 the big question. That's the question everybody wants to to uh, to try to figure out. There has been some speculation in the last few years that you know because I remember. It was like 2014 that the current woke fad. So, you know, this goes back a long time. When I was in college, it was, we called it political correctness, right? In like the late 80s, early 90s. They called it political correctness. Uh, and it was this idea that everything has to be politically correct by this sort of far left Marxist standards, that everything, all of your speech had to be policed to make sure you were saying things and doing things. And your your sex life had to be policed to make sure that it was, you know, have had the right Marxist political content or something like that. I and mean, this is a whole, and this goes back to, um, you know, was it the, uh, the Soviet school of art was socialist realism where, uh, you know, what they had their approach towards art, you know, all art, all movies had to have the right political message to it. And having the right political message was the only important thing about it. And was it, uh, uh Sergei Eisenberg, a fa very famous pioneering early filmmaker was criticized by the Soviet authorities because uh, a movie he made had no socialist content in it. So this is an idea that goes, I mean, and it goes back all the way to Marx, who had this idea that, look, you know, every art ideas, everything going on in society, it all just just reflects these 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 uh, underlying relationships of oppressor to oppressed. Uh, it's all just a legitimating ideology to support the existing system of capitalist exploitation of the workers. And therefore, Art, sex, ideas, philosophy, all of that has to be subordinated to political control for the sake of class warfare. Right. So this is this is something that goes all the way back to Marx. It is this collectivist 
literally collectivist in the idea that the, the collective, the group uh, is all that exists and the individual has to be made to conform to the group. And you had the old Marxist version, it has the new race, class, and gender version. That's sort of a variation on that, but it's a very old thing. It's not going to go away. But the current wave of it sort of started bubbling up and 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 really getting noticed around 2014. I wrote an article back then called Confessions of a Reluctant Culture Warrior because like I felt like I got dragged kicking and screaming <laughs> into, into having to deal with these kind of controversies happening every every couple of months. And then it became every week. And then now it's sort of constant. And was it uh, Andrew Sullivan said, we all live on campus now, right? So the, the campus free speech wars came for everyone. The point of all that is that this is not going to go away, but it has peaked like some 2014 to roughly 2021, 22. It was on this steep upward trajectory where it was becoming more and more intense. And I think this is an ideology. It's a mindset. I, I lived, you know, having lived through the previous version of political correctness, which kind of peaked in the 90s and then faded away. There is a natural kind of pathway here that because this is so hectoring, so puritanical, so intrusive, uh, and and because it targets everyone, right? It doesn't just target the the people who are on the other side, the enemies, the 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 the, the alt-right and the, the neo-Nazis. It doesn't just target them. It then goes after sort of ordinary conservatives and then against classical liberals and then against uh, uh, regular left-to-center liberals who aren't radical enough. <laughs> uh, you know, the in, First we'll purge the enemies, then the counter-revolutionaries, then we'll purge the insufficiently enthusiastic. And then it comes for J.K. Rowling, which is, you know, I think that was sort of like a, the big turning point because she's, you know, the idea that she's a bigot is ridiculous. So, um as it came after more and more of those people, it, it generates its own enemies. It is, it is a it is a philosophy, a mindset, a, a way of arguing and practicing things that generates its own enemies. I think the right has its own equivalent of that in, in Trumpism uh, and the nationalists. Uh, but it, it does generate its own enemies. It generates its own resistance. And it generates them not just among us, you know, reprobates out here, you know, cast out as 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 designated as the enemy because we're pro-capitalists or or individualists or whatever. It also goes after the centrists. It goes after the the mainstream respectable people. And I think eventually it just generates so much resistance to itself that I think it started to peak a couple of years ago. But it's still at a very high level. It's just I think it's it's like not growing anymore. And I think this is going to be. I've seen evidence of a lot of people on the center left sort of waking up and saying, "Well, if," and especially people who were who were allies of this movement who are Jewish, who are saying, "Well, wait a minute. You know, I thought we were doing this because we were in favor of protecting marginalized and oppressed peoples, and now you're saying that doesn't include you know uh, victims of of rape and and uh, so part of the scandal that, on this, uh, which has been a lot of pushback." is it took two months after October 7th. It took two months for the first international women's rights group to actually file a formal uh, statement about, about the use of rape by Hamas on October 7th, right? So it's like, you know, we're supposed to believe all women and we're supposed to be against sexual violence and, and, and oppression of women. Again, giant asterisk, except for the Jews. Yeah. Uh, so that's good. You know, I think that's waking up a lot of people. And and was it an article in the New York Times recently that about how, well, there's progressives and there's liberals, and those are two different things. And you know, it seems obvious to me the difference there. But some people, you know, again, it's something that's happened to a lot of us. I think on the right over the last uh, ten years, if seven, eight years, 
uh, since the rise of Trumpism is the idea of thinking of, okay, we're, you know, we have our differences, but, you know, these other people are our allies. In my cases, you know, I knew conservatives who thought, okay, they're kind of on the same side. We have strong differences, but we can work together on a lot of things. And then sort of slowly coming to the realization that what they want is fundamentally radically different from what I want. And they're willing to basically torpedo this whole alliance. And they're willing, you know, these people would ship me off to the camps if they, if they thought they had the power to do it. Um, you know, so people I used to sort of get along with, okay, well, yeah, we can all agree that religious freedom is a good thing. I'm an atheist, you're a Christian. We can all agree that religious freedom is good though. And now they're saying, no, no, we want to have the ability to impose our religion on you. So <laughs> yeah. this is really, this is sense you go through of thinking, okay, these people are my allies. They're on the same side. We have differences, we can get along. And then realizing, no, actually these people hate me. And I think people on the left have been going through that process I think they're beginning that process. I think they have a lot more introspection they need to do about, you know, how is it that liberalism, which is supposed to mean being pro-freedom, is supposed to mean the maximum individual liberty. How is it that liberalism became associated with this? Um, well, it's not even progressive either. I mean, they're not for progress, but with this radical leftist ideology that is against all of that. So I think they're they're just at the beginning of starting to ask those questions. All right, Robert, anything that we've left unsaid on this rather important topic, in my view, anything that I forgot to ask that you'd like to say? Oh, I think we're coming up on time. I I, I think the, uh, uh, you know, the the answer here, the, the thing that we need to start, I see all this as, you know, again, this is a danger. It's a terrible thing that's happening. It's also an opportunity because when people get shaken by this and they start asking questions like, well, what is the difference between liberals and progressives? It's a time for us to raise our hands and say, I've got, I've got some ideas for you as to what that might be. Uh, and I think the fundamental thing is that uh, the, the biggest mistake conservatives ever made, in my view, is accepting the idea that their enemies were liberals you know, and taking the sort of early 20th century FDR, big government types, and agreeing to call them liberals. They were never a liberal. They were never liberal in the sense of being pro-freedom. They weren't even, especially the, the farther you go back to the early 20th century, a lot of these people left weren't even pro-free speech. They were very much, I mean, you know, Woodrow Wilson, the great progressive hero, Woodrow Wilson, threw people in jail for for criticizing uh, his, for criticizing his administration and criticizing World War One. So, you know, these people were not for, pre, for, for free speech. They weren't for freedom and economics. They, they really are not a pro-freedom movement. And I guess the thing that the left has to grapple with is that you have this whole sort of Marxist collectivist variations on it, uh, quote unquote progressive, that is deeply collectivist and that collectivism is by its nature an illiberal doctrine. The idea that you, the individual, have to be sacrificed to, that you have to be subordinated to whatever the group wants you to do and whatever the group demands of you, that is fundamentally an illiberal idea. It is against human freedom in all respects. And so, you know, having sort of, but you know, we have such stupid categories that we use, conservative versus liberal in the, over the last hundred years. These categories are all wrong the way we've made them. And so people get thrown in with their opposites as if they're allies. And, uh, and then we have this idea that, well, you know, we have this political spectrum where there's like Nazis on the one side, communists on the other side. And in the, if, you're, if, if you're not one of those, you're, in the middle, somehow between Nazism and communism. Well, how does that make any sense? I think we need the fundamental realignment we have to have is individualism as the moral base, uh, which goes back to the founding of this country, and 
liberalism, meaning advocacy of freedom in all respects on one side and various kinds of collectivism, of illiberalism, of subordination to the group, various different flavors of that on the other side. That should be our political spectrum. It should be freedom versus dictatorship. And then, you know, that's what, as Ronald Reagan said, was it, uh, it's not an up or right or left, it's up versus down, up to the maximum of freedom and down to uh, totalitarianism. And I think that's how we need to readjust our whole way of thinking about things. Well said. So where can people find you? Well, they can find me at the Trzinski Letter, uh, TrzinskiLetter.com. Uh, and that takes you to my Substack newsletter, uh, my main one. I also have Symposium.Substack.com, where I, I talk a lot about this idea of the political spectrum and, and liberalism. Uh, and uh, you can find my columns at Discourse Magazine and uh, publish various other places and, and doing occasional events for the Atlas Society. All right. Well, thank you very much for being here. For now, my, this is this is go ahead. I'm sorry. My pleasure. Oh, I was going to have you be here. Thank you. For now, this is the Rational Legal is signing out. I'm Michael Leibowitz. Remember, leave your comments. I want to know what you think. It's important. Till next time.